Howdy, podcast listeners. The holidays are here, and it's time to deck the halls with wine. Nothing pairs better with holiday dinner parties than a bottle of award-winning Texas wine. Or maybe you have an uncle who's impossible to shop for. Wine makes a great gift for family, friends, and customers. And Somley has curated bundles that work for all budgets. Bring the Texas winery experience to your doorstep. Deliveries are set to align with Christmas. Check out the Buy Wine section on Somley.com to see all of the bottles and bundles that are available. Cheers, y'all. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 55. Adrienne Ballou is my guest, and you may know her name from her time at a couple of different Hill Country wineries, most recently Southhold, or from her own label, Light Some Wines, or from Nice and Easy, the bar she co-owns in Johnson City. In Texas Wine News, I'll share some holiday wine deals, some great press for Texas wineries, and dig a bit deeper into the winners at Houston Rodeo's Uncorked International Wine Competition. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Last episode, I mentioned that I had the pleasure of judging at the Houston Rodeo Uncorked International Wine Competition for the very first time. It was in November, and it's one of the largest wine competitions in the country, and they had 3,000 wine entries this year from over 18 countries. There were a total of 123 judges and hundreds of volunteers, and of course, I was anxious to hear which Texas wines had won. Apparently, there were over 531 Texas wines that were entered. But before I get to the Texas wines that showed big, Le Chemin de Roy Brut Champagne AOC non-vintage took home the top prize as the grand champion best of show. And believe it or not, this is the same wine that won two years ago. You may know it best by who's behind the label, and that's Curtis Fittycent Jackson. The top all-around winery was Becker Vineyards. This is an award that recognizes one individual winery, from all entrants, who has the greatest number of wines winning the highest number of awards and medals. The top Texas winery was Messina Hoff Winery. And there, the individual Texas winery, having the greatest performing entries from Texas Appalachians overall in the competition. Of course, these wineries will receive the customary saddle and belt buckle. If you're listening from someplace other than Texas, you may be surprised by that. It is not uncommon to see the occasional saddle displayed in tasting rooms across the state. The top Texas wine was awarded to Becker Vineyards Barbera from Talent Vineyards in the Texas Hill Country. That's a 2019. So in addition to being named top Texas wine, they received special recognition from George and Barbara Bush Foundation. Talent Vineyards is in Mason, and regular listeners of this podcast may have heard Talent Vineyard mentioned in my recent episode with Don Pullum of Mason, Texas. In a Facebook post, Don broke out the winners that used Mason grapes. There were nine such wines. They include wines from Becker, Bending Branch, Peter's Prairie, Pontotoc Vineyard, and wines of Dotson Cervantes. Each wine competition does things just a bit differently, and it took me a while to understand the system at Houston Rodeo. 
So these awards that I've mentioned are obviously the biggest and broadest, but I'm also very impressed with the wines and wineries that win the Class Champion Awards. These are the top-scored wines within a class like, say, Sangiovese, across all entries from anywhere in the world. Now, there's also a Texas class champion, which is just what it sounds like, the best-scored Texas wines. So obviously, when a Texas wine wins class champion, it's also the highest Texas wine for that category. But it had to beat out wines, presumably, from around the world. Texas had over 25 class champions in this most recent round of judging in Houston. And don't worry, I'm not going to list them all. But here are a select few that won some big categories, and they're further divided into price categories, but you can look up all those details on the Texas Wine Lover website. Just sort the column by award type. So here are a few of the class champions. English Newsom won for both Pinot Grigio and Viognier. High Meadow for New World Tempranillo. Limestone Terrace Vineyard for Morvedra. Yano won the lower price point categories for both rosé and white blend. Ron Yates won in two red wine categories, red Bordeaux varieties and other red blends. And Texas Heritage Vineyard won for mid-priced rosé. And this is just a sampling of class champions, but congratulations to everyone who won and to the amazing team that put on this great competition. Congratulations to Texas Heritage Vineyard and Fredericksburg for being voted Best Wine Tasting Room for three years in a row and Best Winery for the last two years as well. By readers of the local Fredericksburg newspaper. If you missed my episode with Susan Johnson, owner at Texas Heritage, be sure to go back and listen to that one, which was aired in May of 2021. Locals in the Hill Country know that Texas Heritage is serious about 100% Texas wine And I also know that they've got a serious lineup of live music and a beautiful patio. So cheers to Texas Heritage Vineyards for this recognition. And like your friends down at Cibone said, once is random, twice is a coincidence, three times is a trend. The holidays are here, and of course, there are Texas wines popping up on various lists of great gift ideas. Big Tex just sent out his favorite gifts, which include... Customizable cases and half cases of Texas wine that were blue ribbon winners at the State Fair of Texas. A great choice here is the full case, which has red, white, rosé, sparkling, and both dry and sweet wines. But if a full case isn't in your budget, my next suggestion is the bone dry option. It's six bottles of dry wine, and it's got everything you need for holiday entertaining, including the Messina Hoff Brut Sparkling Rosé, the Rustic Spur Morvedra Rosé, a Hilmi Rosé, C.L. Buteau's Papa Frenchie White, which is a Roussan, and two red wines, a Pedernalis Tempranillo and the Reddy Grand Vitis, a Rhone blend. Now, December 10th is the deadline to place an order there, so check it out on Somli.com. The Dallas Morning News also suggested that Texans shop local for the holidays, and they provide a long list of Texas-made food and drink ideas. Their suggestion is a four-pack of wines from four Hill Country wineries from Texas Fine Wines. They're all shipped together in a box, and the four-pack sells for $135. Deadline for Christmas delivery is December 7th, and in your packet, you get four bold red wines, the Pedernales Cellars Graciano, a Dukeman Tempranillo from Salt Lake Vineyards, Spicewood Vineyards Independence, which is a Bordeaux blend, and Bending Branch Winery's Texas Cabernet Sauvignon, which is 80% cab from Newsom Vineyards, 
and 20% Petite Syrah. And if you find yourself near a winery that's hosting a Christmas market, be sure to make a stop. This weekend, there's a lot going on. On Saturday, December 3rd, we've got a Christmas market in Kerrville at Kerrville Hills Winery. A number of the wineries that are part of John Rivenberg's incubator program will be there and other vendors too. On Sunday, we've got a Christmas market at Ab Asterisk. They've got artistic wares, food by Chase's Place, visits from Santa Claus, Christmas music, and more. If you're closer to Lubbock, head over to Yano Estacado for their market on Sunday. And Austinites should head to the Sip and Shop, not just for local makers, but also live music and heavy pours. Seems like there's a lot of fun holiday events going on this month at wineries across the state. But if you're listening to this podcast at any other time of the year, you should know that the best winery gift shop any time of year, in my opinion, is at Farmhouse Vineyards at either location, Johnson City or Brownfield. They've just got the cutest stuff. Stephen McDonald is a master psalm who's executive wine director at Pappas Brothers Steakhouse, and he oversees the group's three locations and a massive Wine Spectator Grand Award-winning list that tops out at 5,000 bottles. In an article with an online publication called Inside Hook, he shared some of his favorite Texas wineries and some specific bottles to pick up this season. His first suggestion is from Dukeman Family Winery. He likes Salianico, and he says it's a consistent favorite of his because of its dark fruit, herbs, and spices, and it makes it especially good with food. His next suggestion is from Fall Creek Vineyards. He gives high praise to their Vintner Selection Chardonnay from Certainburg Vineyard. He says it's truly one of Texas's best white wines. If you like California Chardonnay and haven't had it, you need to get a hold of a bottle. From High Meadow Winery, McDonald said his favorites rotate between the Tempranillo, the Alianico, and the Sangiovese, depending on the vintage. He also likes McPherson Cellars. For crisp whites, he recommends their Albarino or Pickpool. And for a richer style white, he likes their Roussan and Roussan Reserve. If you're looking for red, don't miss the Senso or Le Copain's Red. And finally, he likes Southhold Farm and Cellars. Particularly, he likes Everything is Under Control a structured and floral Sangiovese. And here's a tip. Since I know you're a podcast listener, I recommend that you check out episode 448 of Wine for Normal People, especially if you're following the efforts to create additional AVAs in Texas. This episode came out on Halloween, and it's called Everything You Wanted to Know About Terroir with Dr. Kevin Pogue. He's been involved in creating proposals for a number of new AVAs and has a lot to say about the process, the marketing behind AVAs, and of course, terroir. And finally, the place to be on November 29th was on Zoom with your fellow podcast listeners at the first ever podcast Zoom happy hour. I was hoping someone would show up for it, and y'all did. We had fun with some trivia questions, laughed a lot, and shared what we were drinking. I also gave some gift ideas for wine-related gifts for the holidays, And it seems the trivia may have been a little bit hard, but there were a few people in the session who are actually Texas wine experts, and of course, they handled it just fine. The winner was Jeff Cope, who runs Texas Wine Lover website. Denise Clark and Eric Sigmund also had stellar results. This seemed to go over well, so I'm already thinking of more trivia questions, including some that don't require that you live, sleep, and breathe Texas wine, so we'll be sure to do it again in the new year. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. That's all the Texas Wine News. (music) 
My guest today is Adrian Ballou, who has been doing great things for Texas wine for years. I first heard Adrian's name when she was one of the featured women in Texas Wine Lovers 2017 article, The Next Generation of Texas Women Winemakers. In this interview, you'll hear about her early career and education at UC Davis, her career thus far, which includes working at Jester King, her wine label, Light Some Wines, her bar in Johnson City, and what she's off to do next now that her work at South Hold is done. We talk about the challenges of being a working mom in wine production and also her dreams for the future. And you'll hear me admit how clueless I was about the Texas wine industry when I first met Adrian. I'm kind of embarrassed to publish it, but here you go. Here's our conversation. And FYI, the sound gets much better at about the three-minute mark, so hang in there. Where in your life did you start getting an interest in Texas wine, and where does your wine and beer story start? So I'll start with uh, where the wine and beer story starts and kind of how that led me um, back to Texas, which uh, I did grow up in Austin, so that kind of laid the foundation. But when I was 17, I ended up touring a college up in Canada in Montreal and serendipitously ended up the chair of the V&E department at UC Davis while on the tour with my dad. And he was there touring with his daughter. It's a little bit of a random story, but important. Um, He was touring with his daughter and the four of us got to talking and that was that was kind of a light bulb moment. That was the first time that I learned that you could study winemaking at a university. Um, So it very much planted the seed. And I ended up going to UT and studying chemistry. And I completed a year at UT and was not quite satisfied with the direction of my life. And I I didn't feel very inspired in the chemistry department. And I'd always had this thought in the back of my head after meeting Dr. Waterhouse, like, well, maybe I could go to Davis and study winemaking. Um, my sister was living at the time in Walla Walla, Washington, which I knew was kind of a budding wine region. And so I ended up deferring my sophomore uh, fall semester and going up to Walla Walla to work my first stage when I was, um, I guess I was 19. And I worked at this really wonderful winery called Forgeron Cellars. And um, the winemaker and owner, Maria, was from Burgundy. And it was just a wonderful experience. The whole cellar crew was amazing. I ended up becoming really great friends with kind of everyone there. And Maria was this great mentor. And it very much solidified that I wanted to switch the direction in my life to winemaking. So I came back to Texas, finished my sophomore year at UT, and then ended up transferring out to UC Davis, where Dr. Waterhouse was still the chair of the V&E department. And so, yeah, that kind of like chance meeting in Montreal sort of set the, set the pick. And, um, so I did my undergrad in agriculture uh, and enology at Davis. I I ended up going to Burgundy to work a harvest after 
And uh, while I was in Burgundy trying to decide if I wanted to do a Southern Hemisphere harvest or something else, I made the decision to apply for an internship apprenticeship. So I came back to Texas in 2013 to uh, for an apprenticeship with Jester King Brewery. And they brought me on board uh, for a couple of reasons. One was they wanted to uh, start doing their barrel aging in wine barrels versus I think they were primarily using bourbon barrels before. And then they wanted to start a fruit re-fermentation program. So they saw um, the value of bringing someone on board that had a winemaking background. Can you explain what that is for someone who doesn't know anything about beer? What is a fruit re-fermentation <laughs> project? So I, traditionally, like they were sort of modeling this program after um, – Lambic beer in Belgium, Lambic Singus. And so this style is where you're aging beer in oak barrels for, you know, several months to several years. And then you're taking that base beer and you're adding fresh fruit or maybe frozen fruit or a few pure fruit puree, some sort of fruit to the beer and the sugars in the fruit cause a fermentation process to start again. And through that fermentation process and the contact between the beer and the fruit, you're getting these like really nice extractions of fruit character. And so the result is basically a fruited beer. I see. Yeah. They, yeah, we really started that program in 2013 as soon as I came on board, um, starting using I think it's called like IQF or individually quick frozen berries from the Northwest. Um, so we were literally like taking this frozen fruit and um, adding it to this barrel aged beer. And that would have been, I guess, in the winter of 2013. And as we started getting into the summer months, it obviously made sense to shift gears towards fresh fruit and using fresh fruit in our area. Um, we worked with Vogel on getting peaches and then, you know, of course, it, like with my background and also with what's in our area, it made a lot of sense to work with wine grapes. And so that's where my journey into Texas wine really started was when I was at Jester King. The first people I reached out to uh, were Doug Lewis, Chris Brundrett, and David Culkin. And I was trying to think back on like who I got fruit from first and I think it was David um I can't remember if it was 2013 or 2014 that we started this but I know the first year we got fruit um we got wine grapes there had been a really bad spring freeze in Texas so there wasn't a lot of availability mm -hmm. and for that reason we ended up getting uh, it was California Tempranillo from Pernalis Cellars. We just kind of piggybacked and um, David filled like a macro bin for us. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think that was the first kind of wine grape beer we did at Jester King. Um, and then the second was with Blanc Dubois. And I can't remember if that came from uh, Lewis Wines or William Chris, but we ultimately ended up working with both Doug and Chris because every year we were making beer with wine grapes. And 
Yeah, that's how I kind of got to know some of the folks out here and was so excited and inspired by the wines that I was trying. Um, I have a really vivid memory of Doug taking me through uh, through his cellar and doing some barrel tastings with me. And I, I want to say this was 2013. I think it was specifically a punch-in of might have been 2013 Tintacal from Round Mountain. And it was such a beautiful, elegant wine that he pulled from that barrel. It was, it had like notes that were very reminiscent of Gamay. And I'd, I'd never had Tintacal from Texas before. And um, hearing him talk about the vineyard and what they were doing in the cellar, it was just really exciting. And I think that was uh, one of the first moments that I was like, I, I think I might want to stay in Texas when I decide to go back to winemaking. Because mm-hmm. when I started at Jester King, it was first a six-month apprenticeship, and then I was offered a position, and I ended up staying there for three years. But it was always with the intention that someday I would go back to making wine. Um, and, yeah, I think that was really one of the first moments that I thought, okay, well, maybe I want to make wine in Texas. And, you know, I got to know more people in the area. Um, Trying wine at William Chris was also very inspiring. I met Ben Calais and um, was so excited about the wines that he was making. And so, yeah, when when the time came for me to return to winemaking and leave Jester King, um, which was at the beginning of 2016, that's when I reached out. Uh, Doug was the first person I reached out to. Um, and it was just like, I'm ready to jump back into wine and I want to be in Texas wine and I'd love to come work with y'all. And um, he and Duncan were great in that I was also, I was, at the same time, I was offered a harvest position in Australia. And they were like, go to Australia, go get some more experience. And then when you come back, you can start your position with us. That's great. Um, which was great. It was, I, I think they saw the value in me going out and getting experience elsewhere and um, supported that. And so I started at Lewis Wines, I think it was May of 2016, and I jumped straight into a lot of vineyard work, and I've been working in Texas wine ever since. Well, I wouldn't expect you to remember this, but I remember the first time that I met you, I had been told that I should try some wines um, that Ben Calais makes. And so at the time, for some reason, he was not pouring in his winery. He was setting up a tasting at High Meadow. And so I had a reservation and I went to High Meadow and and you poured for me in the back patio area. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, I just didn't know much about Texas wine. And I I had no idea, frankly, that someone would be a UC Davis graduate and would want to come work in Texas. <laughs> I was surprised, I have to say. And I I, yeah. I think that's a little unusual. It was at the time. I'll put it that way. Now everyone wants to work in Texas and it's great. Um, but yeah. do you think that your Davis experience prepared you for what I've heard about Davis is that they often prepare people for working in large wineries. Do you agree with that? 
Um, I do. Um, I do agree with that to a certain extent. I think a lot of the, um, just like winery practices and approach to winemaking, yes, it's a little bit more geared towards large production, but I also really felt like all of my professors there taught us to be critical thinkers. And so I feel like there was a lot of, um, you know, even though like on paper, the technical things we were learning may line up a little bit more with large production, there was always an encouragement for critical thinking in terms of winemaking and viticulture that really would lead to covering like a broad range of scenarios. Um, I also feel like I was part of a, I, I loved my graduating class from Davis. I feel like we were a really special class. Every class is a special class, but um, we had a lot of like tasting groups and we had, um, we all made wine and, uh, one of the students' garages, and I feel like the camaraderie and the conversation and the experience we all gained together outside of that classroom setting offered me this like perspective of sort of more traditional approaches to winemaking, um, kind of thinking outside of the context of that large winery production and thinking more about production and viticulture in the context of like a smaller winery or that's taking maybe a more traditional approach both in the vineyard and the winery. So I personally feel like my experience covered um, a little bit of everything. That's good. I actually ran across an article that was in 750 Daily about your graduating class or the classes just right around yours. And it was called The Wine Mavericks That Heralded a New Generation at UC Davis. And it just basically is talking about how a lot of people in your class were particularly interested in more, you know, lower intervention wines and um, kind of micro labels is what they called it. And I think Martha Stuman was actually in your class or near your class. And I know a lot of people, I don't know if she's still considered a small wine producer at this point, but... Yeah, Martha was, uh, she was uh, doing her master's program and I was in the undergrad. But at that time, I feel like this was something that was really special about our class too. We were the last year, I believe, that the master's students and the undergrad students did all their coursework together. Um, I think the program shifted a little bit. There was also, we were also the last year you know what the masters and undergrad probably still do their coursework together but when i was there there was the option to do a second back it was just everyone was doing everything together and i think that there that really like added to the camaraderie of our program and people like martha were in all the classes and i definitely looked to her as a mentor um and still do and so yeah i feel um, really grateful that I got to know those folks. And last week I was actually up in New York for Peripheral and Raw and got to reconnect with some of my Davis peers up there. Um, my friend Laura's working at, at Ben Marl and um, I 
saw Megan, who's doing margins, who was in the 750 Daily article, and her her project in the Santa Cruz Mountains has been really inspiring. So just That's really cool. good people that I've been able to stay connected with in some capacity that continue to inspire me. It seems like beer and wine both bring together just a, a really interesting um, community. And I feel like, I, I don't know you well, but I've seen on your Instagram, it seems like you guys have a lot of cool friends that do a lot of cool stuff. And I know that you have a lot of interests, not just beer and wine, but I've read that you're a seamstress and a potter, and I know you've got a bunch of animals, and you just have a yeah. lot of interests. So it seems like a, a neat little life that you're building in uh, Johnson City area. Thank you. We're we're definitely keeping things or trying to keep things interesting. Sometimes it feels like we have a little too many projects going on, but um, we're having a lot of fun. Well, that's good. Um, tell me, so you started with Doug Lewis after you came back from Australia, and then where did things go from there? So I worked for Doug for two vintages, um, 2016 and 2017, and then uh, ended up getting a position with Ben Calais. And um, so 2018 was, I, I worked for Ben for exactly a year. So I was with him one vintage. And um, both Doug and Ben are great friends and winemakers that I have a lot of respect for. Um, Doug, I learned so much about the vineyard side and I, my position at Lewis included time in the vineyard. And um, I think Doug is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to Texas viticulture. And uh, I really appreciated that experience, especially since that was kind of my first jump into Texas wine. Um, with Ben, I, Ben doesn't own any vineyards, so I wasn't in the vineyard. I was... Um, like strictly on the winemaking side. And this was before French Connection. So we were doing everything at Calais. And if you've ever been in that cave, it's a very small space. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and um, something, you know, I think one of the big takeaways of working with Ben is you can make beautiful, elegant wines um, with very little with a, within a small space and with very, very simple equipment. Um, it was all gravity flow and really the equipment side of things was almost as simple as it gets, but the wines were like incredibly complex and expressive and as someone that's always had the intention of kind of doing my own thing someday on like a simple small scale, uh, working for Ben was just an incredible experience. I think Ben also is, um, I think his background is in engineering and he has a very uh, analytical mind. And, um, I can be a little bit more like doing things by feel, um, a little bit more intuitive, mm -hmm. uh, with like kind of my chemistry background helping guide me in that sense. But I, I really appreciated working with Ben and having, um, 
the experience of working with someone that was more a little bit more analytically minded. It challenged me in a really good way. And I think definitely like uh, impacted my winemaking and I think a little bit more analytically from my experience working with them. And is that about the time that Lightsome Wines became uh, a brand? It is, um, although I wasn't doing it at Calais. I've always done it at Southhold. Um, so Regan and Carrie moved to Texas in 2017. And, um, you know, it's a small industry out here. So I pretty quickly met them and connected with them. Um, Regan and I have a really similar approach to winemaking. So like very quickly started geeking out about wines and winemaking. And, uh, I talked to him about, you know, the potential of making my wine in that space. And Calais is again, a very small space. And, um, Ben was really wonderful about being like, yeah, you can make, you know, I have no issues with you doing your label. Um, so that's, you know, when I really started making Lightsome at Southhold while I was working for Ben. And I've, I just made a very small amount of wine. It was um, one ton of Tariga Nacional from the Robert Clay Vineyard. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, eventually uh, Regan offered me a position, at a full-time position at Southhold. And that position um, included you know, the situation that would allow for me to continue to make Lightsome every year. And so it just uh, made a little bit more sense to move over there where my production would be. And so I started working for Southhold. It was the spring of 2019. Um, Regan recently put something on Instagram that said that you were their first employee and that they were going to miss you so much when you left that position. But yeah. one, one thing that I um, I had to ask you about, let me find it. Uh, he wrote that it was obvious that you he only had one choice, which was that when you proposed coming to work, that they were going to hire you. So I wondered if you remembered it the same way, that you proposed working for him. Um, I, yes, I did. It was, um, you know, it was it was really like when we were having these conversations kind of about Lightsome and I did, uh, I did come to him and I think I was always like kind of drawn to Southhold after I heard about them moving to Texas again, because my winemaking approach was really parallel to theirs, kind of that more traditional low intervention approach and, pretty quickly after like my first conversations about winemaking with Regan, um, I saw like those parallels and it, it just seemed like it could be a really good fit, mm-hmm. um, which it did end up being a really great fit. So what were you doing at Southhold? Um, so my position at Southhold was as winemaker. So Regan and I were very much co-winemakers. And and that was also something really exciting. You know, at Lewis and at Calais, my title was assistant winemaker. And it was really, it was really great kind of working under those folks and um, learning from them. But at 
that point in my career or at the point at which I joined Southhold, I think I was very ready to move into a position with a little bit more responsibility. Um, so when I joined Southhold, uh, it was more in this position of like co-winemaker with Regan, mm-hmm. um, which was great. You know, I had a little, I had a lot more involvement when it came to decision-making and the winemaking process and, you know, all the way down to blends and figuring out what we were bottling as varietal wines. And, um, and that was really great experience. So now that you've left Southhold, what is next for you and what is next for Light Some Wines? So a few things. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I left uh, one job to start working five jobs, but <laughs> all <laughs> in a good way. Um, so next year, starting uh, mid-January, I will be working part-time for Atlas Vineyard Management. Um, which I'm very excited about. I'm ready to jump back into the vineyard. And um, so when I was uh, at Southhold at one point, Jackie Mancuso Mm -hmm. uh, stepped in as vineyard manager and she was at Southhold for a little bit before she decided um, that what she really wanted to do was vineyard management. And so Atlas Vineyard Management is based in California. Um, but Jackie essentially opened like a Texas chapter. And I think there has been a really big hole in the industry in terms of vineyard management. And so I'm very excited that I, I know that there are a couple of vineyard management companies that have also started up within the last couple of years and very excited just in general for those to be popping up because I think that's really going to help move our industry forward. Um, but yeah, I, I loved working with Jackie at Southhold. She comes with so much experience, um, just walking the vineyards with her during that season. She's a wealth of knowledge. So I will be jumping into vineyard management with her and it'll be a part-time position so that I also have time to pursue lightsome. Um, so the intention is to continue with lights and wines. Um, I do have a potential space figured out to where I could make these wines and um, have kind of logistically figured out things to get the ball rolling on that. I do still have uh, some financial things to figure out, uh, kind of putting together the rest of the startup capital. So Things aren't entirely set in stone yet, but um, the intention is to keep Lightsome going next year and to work with Jackie and then also to work a little bit more at the Nice and Easy, which is um, the bar in Johnson City that carries Lightsome Wines. You had a big pandemic project, it sounds like, to get Nice and Easy (laughs) opened, right? We did. Yeah. Nice and easy opened um, almost exactly a year ago. And um, it's been a huge project, one that has been challenging and fun. And um, we have so many memories from the last two years of getting it off the ground. Um, 
My husband and I moved to Johnson City seven years ago, and it's been a really wonderful community and so welcoming. And to be able to open uh, the space that very much is a space for the community has been a total dream. And um, we have two very dear and wonderful friends, Matt and Margot Piper, that um, are involved and that opened the bar with us. And um, we couldn't do it without them, Uh, especially since we have so many projects going on. Uh, But yeah, the, the bar has been a wonderful project. And it's uh it's exciting that we have a year under our belt that is exciting um i saw that you guys just had a party last weekend to celebrate that so tell me what the bar is like you're serving lights and wines uh nice and easy and what else yeah so just some history the the bar has been a bar since the late 1800s it was the building was built to be a bar and so when we took over in 2020 um when we took over the space, it was always the intention to keep it as a bar. Um, but my husband is a brewer and he has his own beer label called Yoke Fellow Beer. And obviously I have lights and wines. Um, so it just made sense that Nice and Easy would be a space where you could always find Yoke Fellow and Lightsome. Um, you know, we were really lucky we're on the 290 wine trail basically and there are a lot of people that are coming out here that are interested in trying um you know boutique labels or you know craft beer and so having a spot in this area where people can come to find lights and wines or yoke fellow beer is really wonderful um in a sense it's like a tasting room for both products but also offers so many other things um it has a really cool cocktail program tons of other guest beers um i'm hoping to expand the wine list a little bit more this next year and um, bring some more texas wine onto the list as well very cool the intention with the bar is uh really that it appeals not not even appeals that's not the right word we want it to be welcoming for everybody mm-hmm. and it has been really wonderful being in that space and seeing such a diverse crowd um you know it's it's frequented by a lot of the locals that have been going there for a very long time and um and then of course we do get kind of tourists or visitors from the bigger cities coming in. You just have a place that is like a warm gathering place where you're not expected to come and like show off your wine knowledge and, you know, hold your pinky out kind of thing. I makes me really happy to hear that. I think, um, yeah, that's very much been the intention with the space since we opened it. Um, When it comes to like the decor, the music, the wine list, the attitude, the beer list, everything. It's like um, kind of what I mentioned earlier. We want anyone that steps into that space 
to feel very welcome and to feel very comfortable. You can, you can sit at the bar. We, I don't know if we have it on right now, but we usually have cold beer on tap, which is like a rotating draft of Lone Star or Coors Light. You can come to our bar and you can drink like a $3 really easy drinking beer, or you can sit down and you can have um, a beer from Yokefellow that's got a little, you know, a little bit more going on. You can also come sit at our beer and we have this really delicious box wine that's brought in through Jenny and Francois. It's, um, it's a great wine. And I love that we have it on because we have a wine by the glass that I can't, I think it's like $9 a glass. Mm-hmm. So like really affordable price point. But if you're feeling a little bit more adventurous, um, and willing to spend a little bit more, you can get a glass of lightsome or we have a cab franc on tap. Um, or occasionally we have guest bottles. We just, we want there to be a little bit of something for everyone. And a different uh, experience each time you come, maybe it sounds like there are rotating yeah. opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned boxed wine. Is um, boxed or canned wine anything that you'd be looking at? I know even Tablas Creek has gotten into the boxed wine game, and I think it sold out within hours of it going on its web up on its website. Do you yeah. see alternative packaging as being something in the future that you might look into? I'm definitely curious about it. This last vintage, I ended up kegging out. Um, a little bit of the 2021 and a little bit of that went to some accounts in Austin. The bulk of it was for the bar since we have a draft system and that worked out great. You know, it's, it's saves a little bit on packaging costs on the producer's end. And it's also more environmentally conscious. I was using less material so that was my first vintage exploring other ways of and means of packaging wine. And I felt really good about it. And I think opened the door for doing a little bit more of that down the road. So uh, it's certainly on the list of things for me to look into. You know, the boxed wine format is, it's great. We love it at the bar and I'm, you know, having that experience of pouring box wine as a winemaker has been like a you know light bulb moment this is great the wine that's coming out of it doesn't taste compromised it works better for the bar because it it has shelf stability of almost two weeks um so i have a little bit more research to do but i'm certainly open to it I just found some light some wine up in Dallas at Pogo's. And so I, I've been saving that for Thanksgiving. So I'm excited to dip into that this week. What are you drinking um, for the holidays or just in general lately that you're excited about? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm going to sound so boring here, but I, I do really love drinking Beaujolais, not necessarily Nouveau, but uh, I love Beaujolais Gamay during the holidays. It's just kind of nostalgic and something we dig into every year. Uh, we were pouring the, I think it was the Dupuis 2021 Gamay at the bar this weekend for the party. And it was just tasting so nice. And uh, it's just so nostalgic. It's it's like, um you know how you have your 
your favorite holiday movie that you watch this time of year for and it's like comforting um for me Beaujolais is just that like it's like that comforting holiday movie that I come back to every year this time of year um so that's always uh I am really excited about the Lewis Wines Nouveau um I just got to try that yesterday and it was tasting really beautiful and um I also, you know, my last day at South Hold, uh, we packaged a Nouveau. I'm really excited to see more Texas Nouveau popping up. And I'm hoping that um, it becomes like more available and that my holiday wine of choice switches from Beaujolais to Texas Nouveau. Um, but otherwise, to be honest, I've actually been drinking a lot more beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Garrett, my husband, just released a couple new beers. So uh, I've been really digging his new beer, Wetsuit, which is kind of a lower ABV dry stout. Um, and then we just got this wonderful package from our friends at Suarez Family Brewery, which uh, is a brewery in upstate New York. And that their project and what they've been doing has always been a really big inspiration to both Garrett and myself. Um, their beers are just so thoughtful. They're just really delicious. Cool. <laughs> we got a, we got a great package from them. So I'm drinking a lot of Suarez family beer right now. I was worried when I asked you what was next for you that you were going to say you're going back into the beer industry. So I'm glad for the te- sake of the Texas wine industry that you are staying in the Texas wine industry. Yeah. And beer no, could I- be an, a fun side project. Beer is, um, I feel really lucky that I'll always be able to kind of have my hands in beer through um, through helping Garrett. And our long-term goal and the intention is to eventually find a space a production space that we uh, have together um so the laws did change in texas a couple years ago so um and don't ask me to get into the nitty-gritty of it it's it's i can't remember it off the top of my head i think it's might be if you're licensed as a production brewery then you can also make wine within the space but anyways you can make beer and wine in the same space now, which was a huge deal when that changed because Garrett and I have always wanted to have like a, a co-space. Mm-hmm. We met working at Jester King um, and we, I love working with him. Um, you know, just a couple weeks ago, I got to go over to five stones and help him bottle. And then last week he helped me bottle Um, we just, yeah, we love working together in the cellar. And so we hope to have a space that we can split one day. And in having that, like I would be helping him with cellar work on the beer side. And then during harvest, I'm sure he would be jumping in and helping me with winemaking. Um, that's so great. Power couple. Love it. Yes. It's (laughs) fun. It's, uh, I feel really lucky that when I want to whenever I'm trying to like troubleshoot some sort of fermentation issue or I need I need uh like a sensory opinion I can turn to my my husband and my best friend and the person I trust the most and he can help me out and it's it's wonderful do you think lights and wines will always be small or are you looking to grow that brand 
I would like for it to always be small. Um, I think small has small has been the intention since the beginning, um, but small is even more the intention now uh, since I became a mom a couple years ago. And um, actually, this is really this is something I wanted to bring up because I don't think it's discussed enough. Well, one, being a working mom is really hard, but in the context of my life in this industry, being a mother and a winemaker, it it certainly comes with its challenges. You know, harvest, I don't harvest is a really busy time and it's so hard to not be able to be like a present parent for three months of the year. Um, and so having our little one Levi uh, really kind of shifted some of the focus. It, it, of course, shifted a lot of the focus in our life to him. And I would love for Lightsome to be something that continues to stay small so that I do have the flexibility to step away when I need to, to be a parent. That makes sense. When he was a baby, I know you strapped him on your back a lot or on your front and <laughs> took him to work, but it gets a little more tricky when they become 40-pound toddlers. It does. I so naively thought, you know, because the first vintage, he was tiny, he was still nursing, um, and I was so stressed out. And I actually got... I. I'm really lucky in that there were some women that sent me really encouraging words like Martha Stuman and Jacqueline, who's over at Driftwood. I'll never forget. She sent me this incredibly kind message right before harvest that um, it was just really helpful. And so I thought that was going to be the hard year, but really this last vintage when he was a toddler and running around and, expressing his emotions in a different way like that was a lot harder yeah well the days are long but the years are short that's my favorite uh, saying about parenthood yeah. and and I'm about to take my younger daughter to look at a college and how that oh, happened wow. so quickly is just insane but I I know those years when they're little is tough and I just had a normal job that normal business hours and I know that it's not like that at harvest it's anything but normal hours yeah. And, um, you know, Levi really, that's the cool thing I think about having kids is they inspire you in so many ways. And I think he's really inspired me to like focus on myself in some ways and to take lightsome to the next level but it kind of comes back full circle because like ultimately I'm doing it for him and for us and to have a little bit more flexibility. And it's not even just flexibility in the context of my relationship with him, but like wanting to have flexibility in my schedule to where I can like jump in and take over a shift at the bar for Garrett so he can step away and like have a day with Levi. And, um, so yeah, there's a lot to it. I'm I'm glad you have an awesome involved partner too because that's that's so important. It is really important. Um, we always talked about how if we ever had kids, um, we wanted to ultimately like 
get to a place where we had our own projects um, that gave us the flexibility to really co-parent or to parent together. And um, it's been a really hard two years, but I'm really proud of us. And I think that we are getting to a place where we are able to do that a little bit more. Well, I'm excited that you've made some changes that are going to be um, fulfilling to you and hopefully give you that flexibility. So, and I'm really selfishly glad you're staying in Texas wine as well. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm really happy that I ended up here. I think, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago when I was finishing up the program at Davis, if, um, if I was going to ever go back to Texas and make wine, I I think I would have said no. I had, I kind of had my heart set on Oregon. Um, I, I think I was always drawn to the Northwest, especially after working that first vintage in Walla Walla. And I had, um, after working in Burgundy, I had a lot of interest in continuing to work with Pinot. Um, but, you know, life, life brought me back here. And, it, you know, as soon as I came back to Central Texas, it just felt right. And then the second I started, you know, meeting folks in the area that were making really thoughtful wines, it, it was just solidified very quickly. Well, I was um, Googling your name, which is how I found out some of the articles, um, the 750 Daily. But one of the things I found out about you is that you're a champion pole vaulter in high school and then even in college, right? Are you? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird random part of my history <laughs> maybe that prepared you for all the physical labor that winemaking can be i it definitely did i i i grew up in a family that really like encouraged athletics and i've always been athletic i was a gym i was a competitive gymnast and then i was a competitive pole vaulter and um I've always been very physically active and I've always really loved working with my hands. And so when I was in college trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, um, you know, winemaking was extra appealing because it was, I wouldn't be behind a desk. I would be working with my hands. I would be on my feet. I would be doing something physical I'm definitely one of those people. And I, and I always question like, is this my personality or is it because we live in a society that's telling you, you should always be doing something, but I always have to be working with my hands. Like if I'm, if I'm not making wine and I'm at home and I have an idle moment, I'll be like knitting or uh, doing some sort of project. Well, it's good. You've got plenty to keep you busy and a toddler to run after. So you won't be Absolutely. relaxing for long. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just really excited for this next chapter. And I will say like, you know, all of my experiences in Texas wine have been really positive and it was a huge decision and shift to leave South Hold to kind of go off on my own and pursue Lightsome. And as soon as that was announced, just so many people reached out with, um, encouragement and congratulations and like, let me know how I can help. And I just feel so much love from the industry and it, you know, I definitely had many moments that, um, 
that first week after leaving where I felt uh, very loved by the industry and the community out here and really grateful to be out here. So excited for this next chapter and um, I'm excited to keep everyone updated on how the project continues and where things go from here. Thanks, Adrian. Listeners, your best option to taste light some wine if you can't find it in a shop near you is to visit Nice and Easy in Johnson City. They've got extended hours through the end of the year, so don't forget to stop by when you go see the holiday lights in Johnson City. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. So this is my grown-up podcaster's Christmas list. Number one, that you'll share the podcast with friends who may enjoy it. Number two, that you'll follow along on the socials, at Texas Wine Pod. Three, that you'll consider supporting the podcast with the year-end donation. You can do that on the website, thisistexaswine.com, then click support the podcast. Number four, while you're on the website, sign up for the podcast newsletter. It's always full of delightful Texas wine news, recommendations, and things that I just don't get to on the podcast. And finally, when you're considering lodging in Fredericksburg, please check out Cork and Cactus. The link's in the show notes. And now for our demerits and gold stars. Actually, I just have a gold star this time. I just bought a cute little pocket-sized book about Fredericksburg. It's called Fredericksburg, and I bought it on Amazon, but I imagine it's also available at local shops or possibly even at wineries in the Hill Country. It was put together by a big-time Austin-based food influencer named Jane Coe, who goes by the handle A Taste of Coco, K-O-K-O, on Instagram. She previously released Coco's Guide to Austin. This little book would make a great gift, and in fact, it was one of my gift selections that I mentioned on the podcast Happy Hour. Jane's going to be doing a book signing at William Chris Vineyards on Sunday, December 10th from 12 to 4, and you get a free glass of wine with a book purchase. I just might see you there. And y'all should follow A Taste of Cocoa for some really lovely social media content. That's it for this episode, and there's just one more episode this year. It's an end-of-the-year wrap-up with Mr. John Rivenberg, and you just never know what he might say. A big thank you to my sponsors. Act fast to get in on that Somli Blue Ribbon wine offer. And get in touch. Please send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. Show notes and more can be found at thisistexaswine.com. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover for promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Cheers, y'all.